0: head to my website simonmundy.com or amazon waterstone smiths places like that to get your copy
1: there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and zepbound for those who qualify
0: Hello, this episode is all about self-inquiry, a process you can do to explore what your true nature or fundamental identity is. We tend to have an idea about who we are based on our roles in life, our beliefs, our values, what's happened to us in the past, our relationships and tribal affiliations and so on. And that's all important to navigate the social world we live in, but it's not the whole story. And we overlook the deeper truth at our own peril now self-inquiry is therefore a way to recognize what we are actually pointing to when we say the word i my guest is piers thurston from quality of mind who is a skillful teacher of self-inquiry and he's got a great phrase before psychology which hints at what inquiry is pointing to now, we run through an actual process of self-inquiry at the end, so you can give it a try when you want. The second part of this conversation in which we go deeper and explore the deeper implications and benefits of this process and understanding is available to my newsletter subscribers. So head to simonmundy.com if you want to hear that, along with a few added thoughts of my own, and I'll link to it in the show notes too. Piers, how lovely to see you. How are you?
2: I'm very well. Thanks for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. Really looking forward to it. So thanks for having me
0: on. Absolute pleasure. And we are tackling a big issue today, Piers. We're talking about identity. One of the issues of this age, wouldn't you say?
2: Absolutely. One of the biggest, I think, opportunities for our society or maybe even species to recognize. So no uh, small matter.
0: I was just listening to a conversation I recorded with Rupert Spira and we were talking about this actually. I just happened to be listening to it over lunch and I gave an example of the absurd identity notion, but it can be quite subtle as well. So what I mean by that is if we take the absurd first, I always think back to quite a funny moment that I heard on the radio when Chelsea had won the Premier League several years back and it was a well-known radio station, phone in and some guy rang in, he was a Chelsea fan. And the presenter started off by saying, Bob, congratulations on winning the Premiership, Premier League. (laughs) And Bob was like, thank you. Dead serious. He took full credit. So he was clearly very identified with being a Chelsea fan. So much so that he was happy to take some credit for their victory on the field. Mm. So that's, let's say, the more absurd end. But then the subtle end could be something I've noticed a lot now. People talk about, for example, how I find my identity is in my values. I'm a kind person. I'm a thoughtful person, that kind of thing. And I live according to my values. But whilst that's a lot more subtle and a lot more digestible, that's also questionable too.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, either we're defined by our affiliations, our profession, or our behavior, or our values, or our role in life. There's loads of way we, ways we do it. And, and they're all a layer up from the initial mistake we're making about identity. Yes. Which I'm sure we'll get into.
0: <laughs> we will, we will. It's interesting, I think, that this whole thing of identity, it's become even more pronounced in the last five, ten years. It's taken very seriously. And that's fine. There's no sort of judgment on that. But I do think that's very interesting. And that's why I think having a conversation like this is valuable because it does take the different view, take a 180 path from the mainstream, should we say. So I want to talk a bit about what you do. So you've got a very nice way of using language that is quite clever, quite (laughs) non-threatening. So you talk about before psychology, which I think is a great name. So just what do you mean by before psychology? So, yeah, so I've been in
2: the human potential personal development game for 20 plus years. And so for the first sort of 10 years of that, I was helping people have – different behaviors, different habits, different belief systems, different thinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, using things like positive psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, all sorts of tools and and approaches. And it was all trying to help people have a better psychology. And if you have a better psychology, as in what I mean by psychology, I mean is, is sort of thinking, mindset. It leads to better behaviors, which could lead to better actions or a happier life. And there was some success in that, in that. But then it kind of dawned on me through realization that there's a power that exists before that, before us playing around in in our thoughts and in our belief systems, which trumps and completely surpasses anything you can do once you've already cooked your psychology. So what we mean by before psychology isn't looking at the content of what someone thinks or believes or Behavior or attitude, there's actually an element of looking at the exploring the very nature of what we are, the nature of reality, the fabric of reality, and how that then turns up in the form that we are, which we would call human, and how that then turns up into psychology. So we're looking at the nature of consciousness, the nature of how the personal mind creates meaning in narrative and then how that then turns up in our day-to-day. So we go from the very profound of looking pre-content to anything we think, perceive, or feel, and then we show how that's relevant, so it doesn't just become something philosophical, to our day-to-day work and life. So it's moving the leverage point back to where we don't normally go.
0: So psychology is obviously a big thing. Use used a couple of words there that I think should elaborate on. So One actually, I wanted to zero on mindset. What does a mindset mean to you?
2: It's an interesting word, isn't it? It is. We're all about getting a a great mindset, and then you go, "Well, why would I want a mindset? Wouldn't I want a mind fluid?" But a mindset is generally a word that's been popularised, you know, recently with academics and things about. Uh, having a great attitude to something like, oh yeah, they've got a great mindset about work. They get in early, they they try hard or a great mindset about school or whatever it is. It basically is a word to label a set of beliefs and narratives and therefore behaviours about something. And then we might say, well, they need a better mindset, which is basically, I don't like how they think about that. And I might be an employer, in which case I'm justified because I pay them. But it But it is talking about a collective of beliefs, which then are how you see something, which really we are way more fluid than Mm. that. Mm. But it can look like it consolidates into a mindset. So I used to be all about have a better mindset. And now I'm like, no, 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 no. I I don't want to point to that anymore. There's something more powerful.
0: What's the difference between a thought and a belief as far as you're concerned? Just how strongly you hold it.
2: (laughs) So I might have a thought saying, oh, it looks a bit cloudy outside. And then I have a belief that Tottenham are the best team in the league at the moment, right? <laughs> now, w- one I hold a little more strongly, and then I might have another one that says I love my children. So they're, they're different levels of absolutely the same thing. So it's to do the level of conviction that I hold something, from the weather to Tottenham to my children. They, they present themselves in the same way. One might be more consistent, but they are the same thing. Mm. just more deeply held and more self-identified with now we can talk about when we get to identity a bit more we can talk what we mean by self-identified
0: yeah okay so back in the day you were all about psychology so you were mm. all about nlp neurolinguistic programming uh positive thinking challenging thoughts that kind of thing but you've evolved or moved on let's call it a, a recognition. Mm Hmm. good thing about this recognition, or I would imagine you would argue, is that unlike positive thinking or some of these other tools and techniques and strategies that require daily, hourly, minutely implementing, in a way, this recognition does the heavy lifting for you. Yes, yes. There's less psychological
2: efforting, (laughs) if you can describe it like that. It just sort of seems to turn up more innately organically, without you having to think like, okay, let's, let's, let's think positive about this, or let's try and chase away those negative connotations and think what the silver lining might be, or less needing to do a tool or a technique or a ritual, less reliance on, on those types of psychological strategies, because it just sort of happens. Mm.
0: So, and less reliance on having to change the content of experience at all.
2: Yeah so it doesn't matter so much whether you're because when i was doing nlp we used to do these things called positivity fasts or negativity fasts how long can you be positive for and if you had a negative thought you had to start again there's a competition in the nlp world which now seems ridiculous because what's wrong with having a thought that says oh i'm a little tired or um what's wrong with that nothing's wrong with that it's to, to the degree that you self-identify and the system buys into that thought that could cause
0: an implication, not the fact that it rocks up in your awareness. We described a mindset. What about a mind? So I would say if someone says, oh, my mind, I would suggest what they're pointing to tends to be something like the place where thoughts happen, thoughts and their container.
2: Yeah. And we tend to in a normal convention would separate what's happening in the world so there's a tree out there there's a car over there and there's a chair over there we wouldn't really say those are in my mind we would say my thoughts about the chair oh it's a beautiful chair it's a lovely tree they're in my mind so we make this artificial distinction between what we would call in, in you know in my mind and the outside world so we have a perceived duality and then we perpetuate that whereas really, I and mean, we might get onto this, I'm not sure, is has anyone ever experienced anything outside of the mind, yes. whether that be the car, the tree,
0: or the thought about the car or tree? Okay, just to, for anyone who's going, this is mumbo jumbo, right? <laughs> I want to pick up a word that you used earlier, which is awareness, right? So let's mm. park mind in terms of it's the thoughts and the container within which thoughts appear. Let's go back to, okay, that's okay. And the world is still out there. That's not in mind. But awareness, when you say I'm having the thought or I think that that's an ugly car,
4: mm.
0: what you're really saying is I'm aware of a thought that it's an ugly car.
4: Mm. So
0: you're aware of your thoughts. If you say, I can see a tree, what you're saying is I'm aware of the sight of a tree.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So internal and external experience. So I think this can be a little perhaps easier to get your head around is that nothing could ever be experienced outside of awareness, outside of the fact of being aware of it. You can't ever experience something and not say, I'm aware of it. It's impossible. You can't separate awareness from the experience. So rather than mind in terms of the way you've just described it, which is fine. What you're actually saying there as well is awareness fundamentally.
2: Yeah. I mean, mind and awareness to me are synonymous words now, but depending on what you're you're talking about, but yes, there's, there's, have you ever experienced anything outside of awareness? I mean, I think that that, that's a tautology for some people they are like, well, of course you haven't. That's the whole definition of awareness. So therefore they think it's just a word play. But if you actually try and do it in direct experience, direct inquiry, you can't you can't find any perception or thought or sensation
0: or object outside of awareness and i've heard you talk about going from invisible to subtle to obvious yes and this is this is something quite interesting about awareness because i've got my book coming out soon and i talk about awareness in it and people are so used to putting their attention which is, let's say, a focused part of awareness Yes. Um, onto things, which is what the mind is used to doing in the car, the tree, the person, the thought, the smell, whatever it may be, onto things. And the problem with awareness is it's not a thing. Like We, mm. we can all definitively say, I'm aware of the car, I'm aware of the sound of Piers' voice, et cetera, et cetera. So we can all say that definitively. But if we would say, okay, but what is that? awareness that's where we run into trouble which is why I think why I know that people really struggle to get their head around it which is why I imagine you talk about invisible to subtle to obvious Mm. yes
2: absolutely the strange thing is it's happening all the time anyway so it's not like a new thing that happens for us but there's a different level of noticing and to start with the way I would describe it is the capacity for awareness is completely merged and blend in with the activity of awareness. So the fact that we are aware is merged with the thing we're aware of. So the tree or the car, so we would just go, there's a tree. We don't really recognize there's a, there's a, the object of the car and an awareness going on because they're merged and, and for day-to-day existence, that's a very helpful thing. Yeah. <laughs> However, because they're merged we then are missing something massive, which is to see the nature of essentially what we are and what is fundamental about what we are, which is the capacity for the awareness. Because everything that comes in awareness, all the trees and the cars and things, they just come and go. There's nothing fundamental or permanent about those at all. So, so they can't be that fundamental. And one of the most important things that comes and goes, which I think we're going to get back to when we talk about identity, is me. Whereas I've been told for 300 years that me starts it all off. No, me doesn't start it all off. Me comes in about two thirds of the way down because <laughs> it's part of the content, not the thing doing the awaring, which isn't even a word <laughs> I recognize. But, um, it's not even the thing doing the awaring, which is our misunderstanding.
0: I want to just quickly talk about, because you spoke about merging. Mm the merging of awareness with the thing that we're aware of. And I think where this becomes possibly the most problematic is in terms of thoughts. Mm -hmm. In terms of my experience, when I was in my twenties, I had anxiety induced insomnia, really quite bad.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And I was trying to fix it. So I was doing all the sleep hygiene stuff, hot milk, hot bath, sleeping pills audio but I mean you name it I did it right and all that did was just wind me up into this knot and this lasted for a few years and it was um, a real torment then I went and I met a guy called Dr Guy Meadows and he deals with sleep issues through acceptance and commitment therapy act and he said a sentence to me that's probably the most important sentence anyone's ever said to me which was he spoke about the difference between the thinking mind and the aware mind. I was like, oh my, I'd ne- it completely passed me by. This was the most revelatory thing. I had literally one session with him and he was like, put more of your attention on the aware mind than the thinking mind because I was just lost in thoughts. If I had a thought going, I'm not going to sleep tonight, I'd be like, trying to wrestle with it. Oh no, I will sleep. There's every chance I'll sleep or I'll try and push it down and get rid of it and suppress it. So I was just fighting thought with thought. And he was suddenly like, no, 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 there's another part that's observing this all, that's aware of it all. Rest there, stop battling and let it kind of unwind on its own. Not only did it do that in time and really sorted out my insomnia, but then obviously opened my eyes to this whole new way of experiencing things so just to bring it back to how i started this ramble is how we get identified with our thoughts in particular so we don't we're the chooser of our thoughts thoughts are coming up that the voice in our head is who we are so yes could you just talk a little bit about this particular bit just to specifically the merging of awareness the aware mind and the thinking mind and how it gets congealed into this one blob
2: yes so we just take experience as Everything. We, we don't separate it into the content of awareness and the capacity for awareness or what you were talking about as the thinking mind and the aware mind. So w- therefore, we're not seeing any differentiation between what's happening to us, whether that be a thought or a feeling or perception and the capacity for that, which basically means we are then defined and limited by what we think, feel, and perceive, because we think that's what we are. Now, once you de those two, uncouple those two, and you see there is something that is consistent, universal, never changing about what we are, and that's not the idea of me, right? that, 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 as I said, comes later. Once you see there's something consistent and unchanging, and it's undamageable by the content, buy whatever we think or feel or perceive or do. It's like the sky and the weather is a very popular metaphor for this. You know, the, the weather doesn't damage the sky. But if you think they're the same thing, then you're going to worry that the weather will damage the sky. Or the other one is, does what you watch on Netflix damage your TV? If you watch a rubbish show on on, on your TV, does the second-hand value your TV go down? No, of course it doesn't. The TV's fine. The screen doesn't get damaged by watching something less sophisticated or whatever of course it doesn't but with the human experience because we merge the two we we don't see it now you can witness this uh, as an observer in young young children and it's absolutely fascinating i know you've got a little one who's a few months now and that'll be starting to happen because at the moment they don't see the separation then they will start to learn the separation and that's when suffering will start basically as soon as we can go, oh, that's happening to me. Yeah, psychological suffering. Yeah. Psychological suffering. Absolutely, yeah. Psychological suffering will happen. So as soon as we think that's happening to me and it shouldn't happen to me, I want a different set of perceptions, thoughts and sensations, then we get in trouble basically or, or, or we suffer. So pulling the two things apart is really a fantastic first step. There was a step after that, and sometimes people jumped straight to the second step. But pulling the two things apart is really, really helpful to uncouple the content from the capacity.
0: Yes. So when I had those sleep issues, I'd, let's say I'd have the thinking going on, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Tomorrow is going to be unbearable. Once I'd been introduced to this, these two parts, let's say, of the mind, I'd add this prefix, I'm aware of the thought that I'm not going to sleep tonight. I'm aware of the thought that tomorrow is going to be terrible. And immediately there's just this little space and you're sort of dropped back into the part that is, as you say, the sky, the unaffected part that Mm. is not affected by whatever a thought happens to be saying. Thoughts can say all sorts of stuff. I'm sure everyone has that experience of like some really weird stuff going through their head. It doesn't really matter once you've got this, this part to it. So, okay, let's move things on then. So you spoke about me Mm. happening to me. A lot of people talk about the ego, the separate self, self self-concept, the story of me, who I think I am, et cetera, et cetera. Could you just talk about in your understanding what this is and how it comes to be and how most people experience it?
2: Yeah. So, so the me, we're sort of conditioned to believe is where it all starts. So there's me with my brain and my eyes and my ears and my senses, and I experience the world to me. And there's something that I am, which is a fixed entity that can see an outside world and have internal thoughts and feelings. And that's what I am. That, that, that's fundamentally what I am. It starts when I'm born and it finishes when I die Uh, It sort of goes through some different variations during the the, the time I'm alive. But that's basically what I am. I'm a separate entity. Now, sometimes that, that separate entity, me, can feel connected with the world around it, but I'm still separate. Now, if we start to inquire into that, we start to see that there's times in our day, times in every minute, every hour, where actually there's no me happening. So if we're really in a lovely conversation with someone like I am now with you, I'm not noticing peers, you know, I'm not having much peers thoughts. I'm not going, Oh, peers is saying this. I'm just in the flow of the conversation. Now, if I got really self-conscious and noticed a big spot on my nose, I might go, Oh my gosh, look at me. Oh God, I I better sort that out. You know, the me thinking might kick in or did I say something a bit silly or whatever? Or, oh my gosh, I forgot to turn the, the stove off or whatever. I, I could have some me thoughts. But if when I'm in flow, I don't have me thoughts. Yeah. Now, traditional science, conventional science would say, oh, the me is still there. You're just not having the referential thoughts. But actually, indirect direct inquiry, you'd start to go, well, no. That me thought comes and goes. It's not always there. So we get into that really kind of, you know, mind like spinning, kind of uh, fry your noggin kind of idea that actually the me is nothing more than quite a persistent, consistent thought. And if you then start seeing it as a thought, you go, well, can a thought have another thought? So if you have a thought saying, oh, I, there's nothing better than courgettes for lunch, can that thought about what you like for lunch have its own thought? Can the I like courgettes for lunch have a thought? No. There can be another thought that goes, and I'd like some hummus on it. <laughs> but, it but the thought itself can't have a thought. So then we go back to going, well, if I'm just a thought, the me, the peers, the Simon, if, if I'm just a thought, then I'm not the one having thoughts. Because I am a thought, and a thought can't have a thought. Now, how does that sound? unpick that to help
0: listeners (laughs) okay so you said the me thought i think probably Mm -hmm. to make it potentially a little bit more digestible is let's say the me thoughts because this is i think something a lot of people can relate to so if someone said look who are you using myself as an example using the everyday parlance might go right oh well i'm simon i'm x years old yeah I do this as a job. I believe this, not this. I'm like this on my good days and this on my bad days. And I value this. And this is what happened to me in the past. And this is what I hope will happen to me in the future. These are my relatives and these are my relationships, etc. So there's loads and loads of thoughts. It's just this huge cluster of thoughts and beliefs and they congeal to create this identity. But um, what you're saying is that because we are aware of a thought and a thought can't be aware of another thought or have another thought, that means we can't be the content of our thoughts, whatever the content of our thoughts say. Yeah. Is that a fair summization? Absolutely. And and you can say it either way around. You can either say, well, it
2: depends what we mean by the we, but you're absolutely right. So because we are aware of us, whether that's my hand or my thought or my thoughts about me, if anything I'm aware of, can't be essential and fundamental because there's something doing the awareing of it, which then begs a big question. Well, if the me isn't fundamental, what is? Yes, okay. that's the next sort of question. It opens up. It's like, oh wow. Well, what is then? I thought it was me. I always thought I was the epicenter.
0: When well, we'll get to that again in a second, there's a couple of other bits I just want to tidy up. Just remember, we've used or you've used the word perceptions quite a lot. So just again. Mm to clarify what you mean by that is just what we through throughout sense perception. So yes. what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can smell, what we can touch.
3: Exactly.
0: That was part one. Another thing I think worth just clearing up or talking about before we do a bit of the inquiry would be about how we tend to, people tend to think that how we feel at any given time tends to be a result of what we are experiencing. But actually, you often talk about, no, it's the other way around, isn't it? It's, it's how we feel is not caused by stuff happening, let's say, outside. The mind is not the receiver of experience. It's a projector of experience. Unpick that one a little bit.
2: Well, yes. So so I often use a little metaphor for this. I, I talk about, in any moment, we're in an aperture. And we can dive into more what we mean by that. But, but at, at the level that you're mentioning it is that, so, so an aperture, when we're in a contracted aperture, we feel you know, down on, on our resourcefulness, the world looks quite hard, we're having a bad day, everything looks like challenging, we're a bit stressed, we're a bit anxious, people are annoying us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When we're in an expansive and more expanded aperture, we feel full of resilience and creativity, love, compassion, kindness, perspective, possibility, et cetera. Now, we've been sort of taught that The aperture you're in is determined by your circumstances. So we, we would say like, I was having a great day until that email came from my boss or until I turned the news on or until my kids were just doing my head in. We, We would say that the circumstance dictates the aperture and then my aperture changed and then blah, blah, blah. Now, actually what you start to see is that the aperture that we're in in any moment determines the very world that renders in front of us. So if we are seeing lots of stressed, angry people around on the train, that's our aperture determining
0: that. That's the state we're in, basically. That, yes. We're seeing it through that filter. flavoring
2: the world we're seeing or determining the world we're seeing, which is like why you can't find your car keys when you're a bit het up. You're like, well, where are they? Where, where are my keys? Where are my keys? I can't... Or you can't see the typo in your document right? The actual world, it's not just you, you feel happy or sad, the actual perception changes. So, you know, th- that's why when people are, in a, are first in love, let's just use that mm-hmm. slightly trite example, you know, all the poems and songs talk about, well, the rose, rose tinted world of, oh, everyone looks so happy. And because you're in such an expanded aperture in that moment, the world looks amazing. Now, if the aperture that you, you are in in that moment is, is contracted, the world looks very different, but it never comes from the world. It never comes that way around. Aperture determines the, the world that we see. And that is a really big thing to realize, because then you've got a lot more psychological freedom, or there is more psychological freedom in the system, rather than getting a conversation about free will, there's more psychological freedom in the system available than we ever thought, rather than being a victim to circumstance. Have you got another word for aperture? Well, I've got some old words I wouldn't like to use anymore, like state of mind.
0: I quite like the word aperture because to me, obviously, it reminds of a camera and it's like sort of that expansiveness. Actually, before I get into that I just want to quickly add something you were talking about when we're stressed and we see lots of stressed faces on the tube reminds me of obviously that well-known I think it's Shakespeare is it the mind can make heaven of hell and hell of heaven and we've all experienced that I remember being on a beach in Thailand miserable as sin and in a cold house when it's raining and happy as Larry so that's obviously true right so in terms of the aperture though for me it conjures up ideas of really wide and all-encompassing which is how we feel when we feel good right is just broad and open. It can be that, but actually you can be really laser focused in a wide aperture. Sure, sure. Absolutely. But really wide, really open. Whereas, you know, when we're really constricted, the example that's in my head is in sport, the difference between being in flow and yeah. choking. So I talk about this in my book, Stephen Hendry, for example, won seven world championships in the nineties and then started to have doubts about his game. Basically he had to give it up because he felt like he couldn't play anymore, but he then spoke to me and said, look, I can still hit the shots as long as no one's watching.
3: <laughs>
0: and so it's that sense of when you're self-conscious, the aperture narrows in that way, this image of ourselves, as you said before, the spot on my nose, the bad haircut, the, oh my God, everyone's looking, at me. that feeling of everyone looking at me. And, and we narrow and constrict. It's almost like we want the earth to swallow us up as opposed to encompassing everything. Now within that, as you say, you can then still narrow down and do the most delicate work or whatever it may be. But to me, I just think that's quite a helpful description. Absolutely. And I think when we're really
2: present, so either flow state or being present rather than in our, so if you want to use some more sort of common language, am I in my head or am I really present? Yes. Am I in flow or am I overthinking? You know, these are all other ways of saying it, but, but, but Simon, you point to a really interesting thing when you said, you know, self-obsessed when we're in, in, in our aperture. Because actually the reason I use the word aperture is it's, the, it's almost pointing to the relationship between how self-identified we are with any moment of experience rather than it just coming through us. So, you know, this me we've been referring to, if we believe the world is happening to me from me, that's a more contracted aperture. So it's almost the the aperture is the relationship between the content and the capacity. So when we're self identified with the content, our aperture is more contracted. When we're more standing as the awareness or or the capacity, we're more expanded. So that's that's the relationship I'm trying to point to with aperture.
0: Okay. I'm going to leave a load more questions for artists, but I think this is quite a, a good point perhaps to to jump in and do a little bit of it because this is a really valuable and interesting practice. A lot of people meditate and do yoga and qigong and all that stuff, which is all great, but not a lot of people inquire or do self-inquiry. Mm. And it is a really interesting, or it can be a very interesting experience. But for some reason, it's one that people are somewhat resistant to. But you... I know you start by having a little play with okay. Let's go really narrow, and let's go really wide. So listen, I'll be your guinea pig. Let's run through a little taster. So to
2: make this play ball at home, it's worth just giving a fraction of context about what this is and what it isn't. If that's okay, because people might be um, practice meditators or reflectors, and and what we're pointing to with direct inquiry is different. So. In in meditation, either we're trying to get to an empty mind and have nothing, or we're trying to just get focus on one thing, like a flame or a phrase. Now, we're not doing that in inquiry. We're not interested in there being an empty mind. We're not interested in there only being one thing in the mind. Also, what we're not doing is reflecting. We're, we're not trying to um, understand more about what we think or... Uh, analyze or critique anything going on. I mean, there, there, there might be questions involved, but we're not trying to work anything out. And actually, even when we do ask questions in inquiry, we're not looking for an answer, which is might sound odd. Why do you ask a question if you don't want an answer? Because there's something in the looking for the question that really moves the needle rather than the answer itself. And the simple guidelines for inquiry are, it's about exploring the very moment we're in, but with no reference to any concept or anything we've learned in the past or might think in the future. It's the, the metaphor I would say is uh, imagine an alien, a Martian, has been popped into what we are right now, just come in, bonk, right? Is <laughs> inexperienced, hasn't had science lessons, hasn't had any conditioning has a basic understanding of English, otherwise we can't talk, (laughs) but what would they experience? So the key with inquiry is to look and not reference anything that we've been taught, learned, believe, or conceptual. And that's why it's quite unconventional. And that's why it's quite challenging because we're so good at going, oh, that must be that and labeling it and conceptualizing it. Yes. So, so they're the basic kind of <laughs> guidelines, and there's no right and wrong. There's no answer. It's just have a go, see what happens, and then probably rewind it and then give it a few more goes. Would be my, my, um, my guess. Right, Piers, Before you jump
0: in, let me let me just add one quick mm. thing because I just think it's worth potentially adding. I just had lunch not long ago with, as you say, my baby daughter, and it was very clear to me. <laughs> how present she was and what was also clear to me is that how that wasn't true for me now what i mean by that is Mm -hmm. as adults we can't help but experience the world with this running commentary labels this you know if you see a word you can't help but read it the mind has done all, all that which is why i think we're so unused to this what you suggested this idea of we're not looking for an answer. We're not looking for a concept. We're not looking for a word or anything like that. So it's almost, again, as well as being aliens, being that baby, isn't it? It's like having the baby uh, mind. Uh, uh, yeah,
2: that, that's absolutely. We're, we're reversing our conditioned learning that what you do is get fascinated by content. We're asking people to look what's there in experience apart from the content. But we're so fascinated by content, whether that's a word or... Or, or a symbol, or a perception, that's where we go. Whereas the baby mind, I mean, they're, they're, they're doing inquiry anyway, right? I mean, they they, they are so direct, because they haven't got anything conceptually learned yet. So that's what we're doing. And that's why it's unconventional. But it it just takes a few times to to see what we're pointing to sometimes. And, and then it's like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of get it. And also, people sometimes expecting a really extraordinary experience where some kind of trumpet will go off and they'll have some kind of eureka moment that's highly unlikely in my experience but there's still a lot of power in the ordinary which we might talk about afterwards
0: yes yeah yeah i think this that's a really important point isn't it the the peaceful mundanity of it can be a little misleading right yeah yeah okay right let's dive in i'm pumped let's go I'm okay. So so to start with just because we've been having a
2: nice chat let, let's just sort of just maybe a couple of breaths or just something just to have, have a little let go whatever every just get comfy in wherever you are sitting standing lying or whatever you're doing right now and often having a couple of little sort of helps that shake it out I mean that the, you know that's all just just get yourself comfy Now as we go through this It is impossible to get this wrong or right. You're not trying to aim to have lots of thoughts, no thoughts, anything. So whatever happens goes. Whatever happens goes. So any thoughts or sensations or things that might be happening in the body or the mind right now, absolutely okay. Don't do anything to them. Don't try and chase them away. Just let them flip through the system. And to start with, we'll just have a little play within awareness, um, shifting attention in and out. So. Maybe for a a few seconds, just focus on one thing very specifically and narrowly. And it might be your thumb. It might be your toe. If you want to keep your eyes open, it might be staring at something. And just narrow down attention onto that very one
3: thing. Could be my voice. Doesn't matter what it is. Just narrow it right down and put your attention on that. And then when you've done that for a few seconds, widen it back
2: out and just notice what else that is available in perception in the moment to you. So widen it out from that one thing. See the rest of the room if it was eyes open, all the the sounds that are there. Maybe you might be noticing sounds outside rather than my voice. Maybe other things you're aware of in sensation, your clothes, the chair, um, other things that you can be aware of. Just widen it out. Go as wide as you can.
3: And then just reverse
2: that. Go narrow again. And you don't need to be focusing on the same things each time. It really doesn't matter. It's just to move narrow and wide
3: within awareness, just to get used to it. Now, as you're doing this, it's, it's
2: highly likely there's going to be a series of perceptions and thoughts and sensations that are just appearing. And what we want to do is inquire into what is it that's there before those perceptions, feelings and sensations? What are we before the activity of the mind? Is there something that's there? And we're going to do this by, first of all, just removing each of these faculties that we have and
3: inquiring as to what is still there. Now, we don't need an answer to these. We're just going to have a play. So first of all, let's do sight an image. So
2: if you want to close your eyes down, it helps, but you don't have to. But just imagine there's no seeing or sight or image, and that's of the external world or what we call the
3: internal world. So without without sight, image, and seeing, is there still something that is you? Is there something that's
4: there before or without sight, image, and seeing? And just notice, removing that, seeing what's still there. So there might still be images
3: and things you see in your mind. That's okay. We're not trying to remove them. We're just saying, what is there before that, other than that? Now, let's do
4: the same with sound hearing, without sound,
3: hearing. My voice can carry on. Is there something we still are? Is there something there
4: before the activity of listening, hearing, and sound? And then if we ask the same question, we put the two together
3: without sight, seeing, sound, hearing. What are we? What's still there before
4: the perception of seeing and hearing? Something. And then we're going to go a little further. There may be
3: thoughts appearing, emerging in the space and without thoughts is there something there that we still are what are we
4: before the activity of thinking So thoughts may come and go but what's there consistently before thoughts underneath thoughts
3: So without the activity of seeing, hearing, thinking, is there something we still are? Something essential and fundamental. It might be hard to define it or to put words to it. That doesn't matter. Just point that attention, if you can, to what might be
4: there to notice before the activities of thinking hearing, seeing. And then we're going to add one more. Feeling.
3: And whether that's feeling an emotion or just feeling temperature or feeling something on your skin. Without the activity of feeling and sensation,
4: if we remove that, what? are we what's there so without seeing hearing thinking feeling and sensing Can we get the recognition, the revealing of
3: something consistent and unchanging that we are? And we don't need to think about this or give it shape or anything. We just notice we might get a trace, sensing of something, an essence of something that is there regardless to what is happening in thinking,
4: seeing, hearing, feeling. Something consistent that never changes, that is us before any activity. As you remove each of those
3: faculties of the thinking, seeing, hearing,
4: feeling mind and can we even rest there just for a moment what do we notice as those thoughts come and go those perceptions come and go we're not interested in those we're interested in noticing what's before what are we There, the flicker of recognition of something more fundamental, ordinary, easy, but there that's not thinking, perceiving, feeling. Now, just because this
3: might well happen on audio, I'm going to ask you to come out for a moment, just to maybe
2: to share anything at all that you noticed or didn't notice (laughs) during that few minutes.
0: Hi everyone. Um, So it's funny trying to describe it, isn't it? Because Mm. as we said before, (laughs) yes we immediately then fall into concepts and thoughts and mm. how do you describe chocolate to someone who's never eaten chocolate, right? But I'll give it my best crack. So that sense of being, that sense of subtle aliveness, mm-hmm. that sense of subtle awareness, stillness. I've, actually, I've, I'm going to stop there. I think that, That's it, isn't it? And I was thinking, a thought that did pop up during it was what are, what would be most people's difficulty with this? (laughs) And actually, that's what it is. It's the mind. Because as soon as the mind comes up in the form of thoughts to try and describe or grab it or identify with it, it, it kind of gets overlaid. As you say, it's it's before that, isn't it? And um, but but I imagine that could be where someone falls into a bit of difficulty, or perhaps overlooks this subtle quality of it, yeah. because we're so used to that noise going on, and, and as you, the content as we've spoken about the whole time, but actually this is this is it's very subtle. But the more you bring your awareness to this awareness. <laughs> The more it enjoyable, I suppose, it becomes, the more you can recognize it. And the beautiful thing is it's always there, always there. And it never changes. That's, yeah. And it's
2: what you said earlier about, you know, I always describe it as invisible to subtle to obvious. Yeah. And and, and it is so subtle to start with that you think there's nothing there. And then the other thing the mind will do quite understandably, given its conditioning is going, what's the point? Yes. So uh, what, well, that's nice a nice few minutes, but I can, I can meditate. What, why do I need to do this? It's the relevance that I think we struggle with now. I'm not quite sure how much we're going to get into that today on this conversation, but the relevance for me oh, of, we are. of knowing, Oh good. <laughs> of, of, of knowing why, this is such a valuable thing to do is absolutely transformatively game changingly large.
0: Yeah. Can I just, can I just jump in here quickly, Pierre? Mm, of course. So I was at Wimbledon last year doing telly and I was with a cameraman. So I was talking about this and he asked that question. Uh-huh. Okay. Like what am I going to do with this? What's the point? And I remember I was like, oh, that's a bloody good question. So I'm very glad actually uh you brought it up because it is um so easy to, To overlook. So yeah, sorry, I just wanted to add that bit of context because that, yeah, such an important question.
2: Uh, It it is. And it's fascinated me for years. You know, given that I've spent my life's work, you know, helping people have better lives or, you know, having more happiness, well-being, productivity, businesses, flourishing, all that kind of stuff. What's what I just did got anything to do with that apart from being a complete waste of time or navel gazing? Well, the relevance is really direct once you start to see it. And that is that if you want to sum everything up and, and this won't make sense at the level I'm saying it for most people, but I'll then unpack it, or probably your, your great questions will unpack it -- is that basically, every time we at one level suffer, or at another level, are not in flow, n- not in our true potential, optimizing everything, learning extravaganza that is the system, is because there's a resistance to the what is, right? So, so the what is being just what's turning up in perception, in thought, in feeling. There's, you know, we, we can't get away from the fact stuff just turns up. Yeah. yeah. And whenever we resist that, we are putting a, a, the, the brakes onto the intelligence of the system. And the only way we, could, we resist is through what I would call self-identification. So this me Cluster of thoughts that we talked about self identifies with the isness, thinking that's happening to me, is about me, or is from me. It's the opposite of flow state. When you're in flow state, thoughts, perceptions, sensations just come through the system. You, you, you're, you're part of it, but it's not from you or to you or at you. You just, you know, where to, how to move your hand on the racket to, to do the perfect return, how to do the free kick. How to say the most amazing thing to your kids, how to have the new idea about the business just comes through. You're just like, oh, wow, brilliant, inspired. Now, that's the system when it's working at its best. Now, when we resist the isness, which we're invisibly, innocently doing all the time, it's almost like we get in the way of that. And the only reason we resist the isness is because we self identified thinking experiences coming from me or about me. Now, in inquiry, we start, in what we just did, the little exercise, you start to see, hold on a minute, the content of my experience comes and goes. There's something I am before that. And the more we recognize that, the magical effect of that is that we then start to self-identify less. If we self-identify less, we resist less, and then the magic of the system comes through. So that's an encapsulation because one move it takes one movement to go from the self-identified "I'm part of the content, it's happening to me, about me" resistance back to what we just did, and once you do that, the system's back in flow, and that can happen about anything to anyone at any time. That's the gift of the system, but we don't recognize that because what we do instead is we go into our psychology, we, so. In any moment, are we coming out of our psychology, back back to the essence, or are we going into our psychology? If we're going into our psychology, the aperture is contracting and we're getting less resourcefulness, less peace, less well-being. And the fact we're getting less peace and well-being is the signpost to say, back up. So the system's even telling us, the system's even got a self-correct mechanism that tells us you're going the wrong way.
0: Thank you for listening to this conversation with Piers Thurston exploring self-inquiry. I hope you found it interesting and useful. I'd be delighted to hear from you if you did. And if it did bamboozle you, that's also fine as it may just have sown a seed that will sprout in time. The second part of this conversation in which we go deeper and explore the implications is available to my newsletter subscribers. So head to simonmundy.com, or I've linked to it in the show notes. It's on Substack and it's
4: called A New Way of Being.